Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Brian Ricardo. Brian is a CEO of Heritage Crystal Clean, a $670 million market cap company that provides cleaning and waste removal services to customers in the US. HCCI is one of the key competitors to Clean Harbors, a company whose CEO we also interviewed on this show. Specifically, Heritage operates in two segments, an environmental service division that offers parts cleaning and containerized waste management services and an oil business segment that collects, re-refines, and then resells used motor oil. Brian took over as CEO in 2017, and aside from a brief COVID-related speed bump in 2020, he has overseen consistently improving results and a higher stock price. COVID presented and continues to present a number of challenges for Heritage, but the company's strong balance sheet and consistent environmental services business have allowed it to weather the storm. With that as a backdrop, Brian and I had a great discussion about how the company has navigated the challenging customer disruptions over the last 18 months, the ups and downs associated with owning and operating an oil re-refinery, the future of hazardous waste regulation and why HCCI is one of the good guys when it comes to environmental matters, the benefits of operating dense route networks and how Heritage defends its market position, and how the company approaches M&A and the opportunity to add more scale. Before we begin, one disclosure to note, Cove Street owns Heritage Crystal Clean shares. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Heritage Crystal Clean CEO, Brian Ricardo. As always, we will start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. For HCCI, it was hard to pick one moment that really stood out, at least from a capital allocation perspective. But given the shock to your business that occurred as COVID set in, and people basically stopped driving, I thought it'd be interesting um, to understand how you navigated the major disruption your customers suffered. So let's go back to the spring and early summer of 2020. At that time, it was very unclear when waste volumes would pick back up and the oil markets were totally off kilter. What were you telling your people then? And did you put a stop to longer term initiatives to focus on the moment? Or did you continue to spend and invest despite the uncertainty? Yes, it was an extremely difficult period for anybody managing a, a service company. So I think the, 
the first message that we gave to our employees is that our balance sheet is strong. You know, at that point, we had very little net debt, good cash balance. We could certainly weather the lockdown. We were going to implement some procedures, but no problem weathering the lockdown. So we did a, a, a town hall meeting and at least got the employees comfortable that nothing was going to happen to the company, no matter how long the lockdown lasted. The next thing we did was put in some safety protocols, which everybody did. We had to protect our employees first. Obviously, as an essential workforce, our, our, our poor guys out in the field had to go out every day and, and, and work in that environment. But we did put in controls where we eliminated, you know, the, the employees having group gatherings. We shut down non-essential travel. We didn't allow people to ride with our service reps. We implemented social, you know, distancing guidance. We put in temperature probes at every one of our locations, some, some automated where people had to go through a kiosk to get into the office. Now we hired cleaning crews that worked on a routine basis to make sure that we protected our employees. Once we got past that, we started rotating employees back into the corporate office. So I shut down essentially for a, a week and a half just to put the safety protocols in place. We did that. We started bringing employees back. From a cultural standpoint, I thought it was extremely important for us to, to have our corporate office staffed because we wanted to send a message to the field employees that we at the corporate office are no better than the people out in the field. We know you're out there sacrificing your health. We're going to do the same thing at the corporate office. So we did that. We put in COVID pay to protect the, the field employees in the event something happened and they had to quarantine for 14 days. We still play, paid our field reps. We still paid our field office employees. We immediately, to preserve the balance sheet, not knowing how long this uh, lockdown would last, we you know really slowed down capital spending outside of long lead term items that we really wouldn't be spending the money for until 2021 or 2022. We kept our, our, our name in the queue on rolling stock because we felt like coming out of the pandemic that we would have a supply chain problem. And here we are today with a significant supply chain problem. So we didn't want to pull ourselves out of the, you know, the rolling stock queue because we have 900 trucks, 900 plus trucks, and they're, they're on a, you know, seven year replacement cycle. So we need to stay in the queue on equipment. We really worked hard to, get in front of our customers as, as much as we possibly could, e even though they were somewhat standoffish. But at the end of the day, that eased up after about 30 days, they started letting our guys in, provided we practiced you know, good behavior while we we're in the, their locations. So overall, I think we did a, an excellent job throughout the pandemic. We didn't really impact anybody's pay other than the senior management team. We, we took pay cuts because we wanted to send a message we ultimately impacted the next level of management, but never the field. We kept their pay whole. Even though revenue declined quite a bit in the second quarter, we felt like it was important for us to continue to pay the reps at a level consistent with what we paid them before the pandemic because they were out there putting themselves at risk every day. And lastly, we yanked our, our fall turnaround into Q2, driven by the fact that we knew we would have trouble supplying the re-refinery with enough used motor oil to, to maintain 
consistent levels of utilization. So we, we shut the plant down. We, we did our, our, our longer turnaround in Q2. We kept it idle for a couple of additional weeks until we built up enough inventory to run it at a utilization rate that would actually allow us to make money. We reopened it and, and it was a smart move because as the year built up, the miles driven increased, we were able to supply the plant. We were able to keep it running for the balance of the year. So overall, I think we did a, an excellent job during the pandemic. We came out of it fairly healthy. Our employees appreciated how we managed the pandemic. Yes, it's been tougher for the office staff because, you know, obviously as a result of the pandemic, people have had, you know, childcare issues and issues with school reopenings. And we've tried to be flexible to allow them the time they needed to take care of uh, issues at home. But overall, fairly healthy coming out of the pandemic. So we're going to talk a lot about the nuances of the business and get into some of the things you talked about, both in the uh, the oil collection business and the refining business. But I want to stick on culture for a moment. So I see that you consistently highlight specific employees on your investor relations website. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that before. And it seems to speak to, you know, almost like a family-like culture that you've developed there. So, you know, why do you do that? And, and what do you think it says about the culture of Heritage that you guys are, you know, highlighting individual employees? Well, I mean, it, it, being a service company and, and I've historically been an entrepreneur. I mean, we, we care. I've run a lot of large companies, small companies. We, we, we care about employees. I mean, they're front facing to our customers. It's been a long time since any of the senior management team has been behind the wheel of a service truck you know, out in the field supporting a, a client relationship. So we think it's important to highlight our employees. We do a lot from an employee outreach standpoint. I personally call the branches every quarter. We do branch calls. I mandate that the senior management team get out to the field. We've just refreshed our vision, mission, and values only because I want the senior team to get out to the field and spend time with our employees. And, you know, it's, show them the level of appreciation that they deserve. What we do out in the field is not easy, especially the past 18 months, given the issues around the pandemic and everybody's had, you know, tragedies in their family life dealing with the pandemic. So we, we think it's important to continue to elevate our employees and support them as best we can. And we do that by, by thanking them publicly. And, are those, were those elements of the culture, you know, the, the very explicit appreciation of employees and that kind of stuff, was that part of the culture you found when you became CEO or have these, are these things that you've kind of implemented and highlighted as, as you've, uh, you know, during your tenure? I think I'd say we probably have done a better job highlighting it. There's no doubt in my mind that the founder of our company and the senior leadership team before I arrived and, and obviously I experienced that as a board member. I've been a board member since 2012. Employees first, you know, great sales and marketing organization, both to the client and to the customer. So no doubt they cared. I think what we've done a little bit better in the last four and a half years is, you know, develop some internal communications and try to, you know, have more touch points with our employees than we did in the past. I'm a very active CEO. I get out to the field quite often, love to be around employees, and certainly encourage that with our senior management team. That's probably the only difference. 
always have cared though, which is part of the reason why I've enjoyed the company so much. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly shows in the way that you talk about it. So let's dig into the business a little bit. Uh, I think when someone approaches this company for the first time, they see that, you know, there's this big used motor oil um, collection business. And, you know, I think as the, as people think about how the world is going to shift from internal combustion engines to, to electric vehicles over time, they, they think that this company might may not be well positioned. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, a big part of that oil, uh, the oil business, your oil segment is picking up used motor oil from the jiffy lubes of the world. And of course, electric vehicles won't require motor oil. So um, what, what do you think that's, how do you think over time, how are you guys planning for the, how that's going to impact your customers? If indeed, you know, we start to see electric vehicles, you know, be a larger percentage of the car park. Yeah, no, no doubt that the EV is certainly going to play a role as we look out into the future. You're beginning to sound like my, my board of directors. I, I probably get that question at every every board meeting, and certainly any investor uh, picks up on that. But the beauty of the, the the used motor oil market and the re-refining market is that you know the, the market itself is probably a billion gallon, nine hundred million to a billion gallons of used motor oil of which the overall re-refining capacity is only 350 to 400 million gallons of, of re-refining capacity. So I think as we continue to push ESG initiatives, which is being driven by the investor community and companies caring about greenhouse gases these days, I mean, we, we all see the being from Louisiana, we battled two storms in the last 30 days. We're beginning to understand the problems associated with greenhouse gases over the long run. The best use of that molecule is no doubt going to re-refining versus burning and you know, waste heaters or, or even put into RFO markets where you have some type of pollution control equipment on it. We spent you know, $135 million on our plant. It's got, you know, lots of pollution control equipment on it. So very little emissions. I think over time, we're going to see the RFO market continue to decline. We'll see the remaining used motor oil go to the best use, which is re-refining. It's going to be a long time before we get below that level from a used motor oil generation standpoint. One of the things that we're working on strategically as a company is growing the ES side of the business. At some point down the road, as we continue to grow larger, oil will be a much smaller component of our business, less of a worry long-term for investors. But I think near-term, we're fine. You look at supply-demand balance, we're in good shape. The, the IMO 2020 has certainly improved the used motor oil market. So I think we're in pretty good shape near-term. And then I'm going to make the ES business a lot bigger so we won't have the, the worry economically about impact EV. And we certainly want to participate in some EV opportunities. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, Coast Street rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. 
Tiki's changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tiki then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. So, I mean, getting to that specifically, as your customer's business model changes to some degree, right? Was as there as as there's maybe less used motor oil coming through their their um, their f- facilities. How do you expect to evolve your service offerings to you know help your customers transition to you know a more modern world or a different world? Yeah, we're, we're certainly going to pursue the, the lithium battery market. It's in its infancy stage now, and you've seen a, a couple of SPACs that have have happened that are processing lithium-ion batteries that have very little revenue at this point. And it's only driven by the fact that the EV market is so new. These batteries typically last eight, eight and up years. So it's going to be quite some time before we see heavy demand for lithium ion battery processing out of electric vehicles. We'll certainly see it in the electronics market. You've probably seen our, our announcement that we've done a, a little JV with Heritage Environmental, which is a company that's owned by one of our larger shareholders. We're gonna, we're gonna help them with the collections of electronic batteries and EV batteries as the market develops. You guys are well aware of our footprint. We have 110 plus locations, you know, 90 branches. So we have a great infrastructure to to collect electronics and batteries on a retail level. They're a little bit better at waste processing than we are. We'll we'll JV the waste processing facility in in Coolidge. They're designing it now, Coolidge, Arizona. So that's one of the ways that we're going to participate in, in the business. And I'm pretty excited about it. And that, that sounds like it could be a huge opportunity over time, especially as there are more and more batteries that, are, that need to be processed, recycled, collected. Does that require a different kind of rolling stock? Do you need different trucks or, you know, how, how, how do you have to evolve your business to be able to capture that? No, we could, we could, we could perform that business today. And we're currently collecting electronics now, so smaller lithium-ion batteries and that could be done in, uh, through our, our sales and service reps, our, our box truck, existing box truck business. So we're not going to ha- have to add a bunch of infrastructure to, to, to do business on the EV front. That makes sense. So, I mean, you mentioned ESG already and so and the investing world has started to focus more and more on ESG and the companies that are considered to be good actors when it comes to the environmental side. So the fact that you collect and recycle hazardous waste and, and um, you know, especially use motor oil would suggest to me that the company's really well positioned. But, you know, how do you think about communicating with your various stakeholders about that, about how, you know, not just well positioned you are from a business perspective, but also, you know, how you are, um, you know, kind of one of the good actors on the ESG side, especially on the environmental side. 
Yeah, when you when you look back at our history, we're we're the poster child for ESG, but we've done a, an absolutely terrible job of communicating it. Certainly, the the pandemic slowed us down, but we're deep in the middle of our sustainability report now. It will be published soon. I've, I've got a copy on my desk. It's well done. Very proud of our people for for the work they put into the sustainability report. And the foundation of this company was built around recycling. I mean, obviously, you're well aware of our used motor oil business, 75 million gallons of oil and water that we recycle a year. We're now a large wastewater player. So we're going to, we just completed a couple of tuck-in acquisitions that we talked about in Q2, both of which are wastewater processors. So that adds to our capacity. We're 50 million gallons plus of wastewater treatment capabilities of which that water is ultimately discharged to a public treatment works and back into the environment after it's cleaned up. Another form of recycling, 40 million pounds of solid waste that has been shipped to waste energy plants. We're the largest recycler of, of spent antifreeze. You know, 4 million gallons we'll collect this year and bring it back into our plants for recycling, turnkey resale back to the automotive sector. So great ESG story, poor job of communicating it. We'll fix that in, in Q3 and really excited about, you know, the potential for us to continue to grow that. We also, you know, we're in the parts washer business. So we recycle the, the, the spent solvent from the parts washing business at our plant in Indianapolis. The wastewater that comes off of our aqueous parts washer business is sent to our own wastewater treatment plants for treatment and discharge. So a lot of good things happening here, and we just need to put it down and explain it to the investing public. That's a good segue because I did want to talk about the parts washing business because I do think it's a really underappreciated and, and, and maybe not well um, known aspect of your business. So maybe talk a little bit uh, about the strategy there. And what is the market opportunity? What is the strategy to grow that business over time? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great annuity business. I mean, it's changed a lot because, you know, most parts on the newer automobiles are replaced rather than cleaned and, and put back into service just because of the complicated nature of the combustion engine these days. But it's still a very stable, great cash flow generating business. The growth is going to come from our aqueous parts washing business. I've been here for four and a half years. We've consistently grown that business at mid to high single digits. You have states now that are banning VOC solvents. New York just banned solvents. So we're now selling our proprietary aqueous chemistry into the New York marketplace. California's already banned it. We suspect with the push on better management of greenhouse gases that more states are going to follow suit. They're already talking about it. That'll enhance our aqueous business. We own our own aqueous chemistry. So I think we have an advantage over our other competitors because our, our our aqueous chemistry we think is the best in the business and we have a, a myriad of different pieces of equipment that we can supply based on budgets so we're essentially calling on automotive and manufacturing and we're placing a machine at their location and we go in and service the chemistry on a predefined interval depending on what their budget allows so we have a lot of different options great business our growth will come from the aqueous side of the business. 
And is that a is that a razor razor blade model where you put the machine you sell them the machine for a really you know, like for a very low price, maybe even a low like negative gross margin, and then and then you make money on the servicing of the chemistry? Is that is that how it usually works? Yeah, we we give them a consolidated price. It's just uh, we we don't charge for the machine. You get a, a serviceable price based on the number of times you want us out there, the number of times per period that we have to change or or per quarter that we have to change the chemistry. Got it. That makes a lot of sense and is interesting. Um, so I think for a lot of companies, the idea of regulation is a potential negative. But I think you mentioned already that there are you know some things in the in the in possibly in the hopper for more regulation when it comes to weight you know just cleaning or disposals. So how you know how do you approach regulation overall in terms of? creating win-win relationships with your regulators? And then how do you position yourself to benefit as, you know, the ESG world forces states and companies to be, you know, more thoughtful um, when it comes to waste disposal? Yeah, let's cover our company first. I mean, our philosophy since I've been here is to have an open door policy with the regulators. We've been very proactive in trying to tell our story one of the things that I've talked to people about relative to our company, I think we were a great sales and marketing organization, probably one of the best I've, I've ever been associated with. Operationally, not something that we focused a lot on because we historically haven't treated a lot of waste. So our plants were drum in, drum out. So not, not a lot of treatment capabilities. We've changed that over the four and a half years. We've added processing capabilities. Last period, I think we processed 5,000 of the 20,000 drums that we took in last period. I want that number to be 7,000 by the end of the year. So we're going to force more waste into our own network. I want to control cost. I want to better manage the fact that we're vertically integrated. It gives us a chance to call on more customers so we really had an open door policy, invited the regulators in. We've had lots of outreach to regional administrators. You know, this is who we are. This is what we've done with our safety performance. This is what we've done, you know, from a capital standpoint to improve our facilities. Come see us. We want to be one of the good guys. So that's the approach we've taken internally with the regulators. I've personally been to D.C. and met with high level EPA people. You know, when I came in, we had a few minor issues that we were wrestling with. We've got one left. And. We're trying to be proactive to get all of that behind us so we can be recognized as being one of the better players in the environmental space. From a customer standpoint, we don't mind regulations provided it doesn't stifle commerce. I mean, we want people to be able to do their business. And and we think us offering alternatives, alternative chemistries, better waste treatment capabilities, we're working hard on adding more recycling capabilities. All those things will help our customers comply. We want to be the experts for them. So we spend a lot of time with our employees. We're we're going to embark on a better training program for 2022. We hope to have it done this year, but the pandemic slowed that down. But we're going to add, you know, more robust treatment, more robust training for our employees so they can better serve our customers environmentally at the job site. We, we want to be the experts for our customers. A lot of them are smaller, don't have their own regulatory personnel on site. We want to be that person for them. And as you think about becoming more vertically integrated, I'm interested in how 
that's achieved. So if you wanted to process more of your own waste internally, does that is that like a new facilities? Do you have to upgrade facilities? What, what, what does that mean? And then, you know, if you wanted to have more of a closed loop where you collect the oil, re-refine it, and then sell it back to your customers, you know, where is that? Where are you in the stage of, of creating that? And does that require other investments and in, in, in organic growth initiatives? Now, let's start with uh, vertical integration first. Our focus, 75% of the waste streams that we touch every day are non-RICRA regulated. Essentially, non has industrial waste. We thought it was important for us to be able to process that waste directly. We had a, a couple of facilities that were underutilized, actually had non-HAS permit capabilities. So we expanded the capabilities of, of those plants by investing capital in the facilities. We've also done some regulatory work to expand the permits so we can handle more non-record regulated waste streams. We've done multiple acquisitions of aqueous treatment facilities, and then subsequently added drum management capabilities. So we now effectively after the last two companies we acquired have seven operating plants that can open containers and process waste. So I'm pretty excited about that, that vertical integration piece. It allows us to call on larger industrial generators, you know, people that, you know, you may need to be a bit more competitive with because they generate more waste than the traditional heritage crystal clean customer. It gives our guys more tools out in the field to sell our services. You know, from a, a recycling of used motor oil standpoint, I don't think I'll ever vertically integrate that side of the business. It's very expensive, you know, for us and very complicated for our sales and service reps, the guys that are operating our used motor oil trucks to contemplate or our box trucks contemplate selling, you know, virgin finished lubricants. There are many, many different types of, of lubricants. So you very difficult to, to train an employee to do that. Our focus is going to be on optimizing our current oil segment operations to make sure our cost structure is right, and then sell the base oil wholesale to customers that have the ability to blend and package and sell retail. And we do it in the form of partnerships. It's been very helpful that some of our competitors have jumped into the finished lubricant business because it gives us a nice uh, client base that knows we're not going to compete with them unless partner up. We'll pick up the waste oil, we'll process it, sell the base oil back to you. You then make a finished lubricant and sell it back in the market. And that plays well these days with, with the whole ESG initiative. Our base oil is more valuable today in spite of the fact that we're not getting a premium on it. At some point, I would like to see that change because of the fact that it's a completely recycled hydrocarbon molecule that otherwise would be burned in a waste burner. We're recycling. We're making a group two base oil that looks as good as anything in the marketplace and putting it back in automotive. So great ESG story. Yeah, you could make an argument that companies should be paying a premium for recycled you know, something that's been recycled and it doesn't have the same, you know, carbon footprint. And those are some of the structural changes we're beginning to see in the business. And I'm hoping it plays out in 2022, the whole IMO 2020 and the ESG component of base oil. So it has me pretty excited about the oil division. 
Since you mentioned IMO 2020, my guess is that the average person uh, listening to this podcast has no idea what that is. Maybe talk a little bit about that regulation and you know what has happened since it went into place. Obviously, we've been in the middle of a pandemic. And then what do you how do you think it positions heritage uh, over the next three to five years as, as either a, a headwind or a tailwind? Yeah. IMO 2020 is an international regulation that governs the offshore burning of high sulfur fuel oil. Just for the, the people that are listening to the podcast that don't know the the used motor oil and industrial waste business. So offshore ships can no longer burn high sulfur fuel oil. They have to burn a low sulfur distillate and or add a, a scrubbing system to process out the greenhouse gases, which is not cheap. So a lot of people have elected to just utilize a, a low sulfur distillate to power the engines on an offshore vessel. So that's been one of the structural changes that have aided the used motor oil market. Back in the day you had, before IMO 2020, you had aggregators down on the Gulf Coast that, that operated these big tank farms that were consolidating different types of, of, of hydrocarbon molecules to be used offshore, they called it bunker fuel. So that created a market to use some used motor oil in that process. Well, that's changed. So you're now relying on regional facilities to process recycled fuel oil, which greatly increases the supply available to the re-refiners. So that's been a good structural change in the business for us. That regulation has driven more of that oil into re-refining versus the recycled fuel oil. That's been very much of, of a help for, for, for our business. And I think, you know, as we look out into the future, it's going to continue to benefit us. Because, it's, you know, we've seen it over the last 18 months. It's difficult for a lot of these third-party suppliers that don't have a tie-in to a re-refinery to move their used motor oil fuel. So they're calling us. I mean, can you take, you know, more used motor oil? We're backed up. They don't have the outlets that they had before because in the old days, they'd ship train loads or, you know, get it down to the Gulf Coast to be barged to offshore facilities, South America, different places we're collecting and using used motor oil. That's not, not as prevalent today as it was before. Great. Let's, let's talk a little bit about competition, um, especially within you know, the environmental services and the used oil collection. You know, someone like Clean Harbors might be bigger than HCCI in general, but in certain areas, you guys may have more customers and a denser route. So I'm interested to talk here a little bit about your approach to competi competition and, and specifically as it relates to defending markets where you already are strong. And then secondly, the strategy around becoming stronger in markets where you don't have as many customers. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Safety Clean is a really solid competitor. I, I like the way they operate, they're, they're disciplined, they, they do a good job. We certainly in some markets are larger than they are. But, but they're certainly a, a bigger company. I mean, our, our company, a lot, a lot of the people that started the business came from the SK operation. I don't tend to focus a lot on our competition. I mean, we're trying to build route density out in the field. We do that by treating our people well. We have a, a different pay structure than most of our competitors. It's you know heavily commission-based. We help them build a route in the territory 
they run it as if it's their own company because the customer becomes so important to them because it's the source of their income. So they work extremely hard to make sure that customer's happy. Our job as a senior leadership team is to give them more tools to, to do more cross-selling on their existing routes and with their existing customers so they can increase the, the revenue per customer that allows us to build the density that creates the economics of scale that we're looking for in markets where we're new, which is most of the Western half of the U S I've learned in four and a half years. that it's very difficult to, to build a branch revenue when you go at it organically without any tuck in acquisition. So we're focusing heavily on leading with a tuck in acquisition. We'll then start marketing our services to the tuck ins customers vice versa, the services they do, they'll market to our customers. That's how we're beginning to, to look at building route density in the Western half of the U.S. so we can speed up this process. When I look at margins, we're negatively impacted by our Western businesses because we don't have the route density. So over the next two, three years, we've got to build the route density out West. We've got to bolt on some tuck-in acquisitions and we've got to get to growing so we can capture more of the market share and compete better with our larger competitors. So that's, that's the game plan. And what I love about route businesses is that when you add a new customer, the route becomes denser. And as a result, that can reduce the cost of collection. So as I think about the mode around this company and, you know, th this podcast is about, is called Compounders and suggesting that, you know, the companies that we're talking to have moats around them. You know, would you consider the route networks that you're building and in, in, in especially where you're strong? Is that where you think the strongest mode is in this company? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the branches, the, the density that we've created over our 22 year history, it's hard for anybody to ever replace. So definitely a high barrier to entry for, for competitors. And, you know, the, the challenge for us is continuing to convince our customers that we're more than just a parts washer company. And I've really worked very hard in four and a half years to build our industrial waste business. We already had a good presence in, in that sector. We're adding our own internal capabilities. We're vertically integrating. We want to be their environmental manager, which is different than what we were before because we focused on more traditional you know, parts washer, CESQ, you know, small, real small generator services. We're, we're advancing that to the next tier of manufacturers. We're doing that by adding capabilities. We now have a field services group. We've got a big vac truck business. So we can do it all for our customers. And that's, that's who we want to be as more of an environmental player, building upon that route density. We, with the, the difference now that we can call on larger customers in that same market where we would pass them up before. That'll help us speed up the route density even more. And the other good thing about um, having a dense route and having people going to facilities all the time is that if you can acquire or develop internally new capabilities that you can kind of add to your bag, you know, that's just, an, it's really, it's, it can be an easy upsell. So how have you thought about, you know, adding additional capabilities or services? Are there things out there that you would like to get into that you're not as heavily into? Um, I mean, you mentioned field services, but anything else to, that investors should be thinking about? I've obviously given that some thought. And for us to, to try to penetrate another market, it would have to come with a, a large acquisition. I'm not going to greenfield another service line. 
we have, in my opinion, we have enough right now. We, we do a lot for our customers. The real key for us in terms of growing the business is taking the existing service lines and penetrating our less mature branches. So I'm going to focus more on migrating our existing core service lines into branches where we're currently not doing it. For example, back services. I can't do back services out west because I don't own wastewater treatment plants. Well, I fixed that with the, one of our acquisitions that we just closed. And we're going to continue to look for opportunities to do that so I can bolt on back services out, out west. So it's going to be more about expanding our existing service line into less mature branches will be more of our focus. Now, obviously, if we see an opportunity to pick up a larger, diverse service line that could use our branch and, and, and operating footprint, we will consider it. I mean, I, I, early days, we looked at, you know, medical waste, more into electronics waste, but, we, you know, we do a lot of electronics now. So I think the focus for us is going to be more on, on penetrating our markets with our existing service lines. We've got a lot of, a lot of running room there. And one of the interesting things about this company is that the men and women who drive the trucks are often, you know, your best salespeople. So have you ever, I mean, have you developed any strategies internally to train people who drive the trucks and who visit customers to be, to think more like a salesperson, to think more about upselling? How do you get people to, you know, think outside of maybe just their, you know, a, a box that includes whatever, collecting used motor oil and, and helping them think about building the business over time? Yeah, that's uh, absolutely been a bit of weakness and something we've identified in the last four and a half years. We've always had a online training program, but not highly effective because you put a, a new employee in front of a, a computer and, and try to do electronic training in our business. Our business is extremely complicated, heavily regulated. We have multiple service lines, so very difficult to do that electronically. The pandemic slowed our physical training program down. We've already written the modules. We will start physically training our guys in a classroom setting, effective 2022. And that'll come with a field training program too, where we free up experienced reps to spend more time with our new hires. It's a, it's a huge problem. Retention, hiring. I've never seen a labor market as difficult as it is today. I mean, with the supplemental unemployment, the, the applicant stream has slowed down tremendously. We haven't seen the applicants. We're beginning to see some improvement in the numbers over the last uh, couple of weeks, but critical for us to do a better job of retention. I think we do a better job of retention by spending more time with these employees up front, trying to teach them the business, help them build up a route so they can make the kind of money that they need to make to support their families. That comes with investing money and training and field support. And that's something we've committed to do next year. It was something that would have happened this year after the pandemic. Now we can start traveling people in and, and, and really explaining the business to them in a more detailed fashion so they can get out in the field and create the route density we're looking for. And also, you know, do a better job with their customers and, and building route density faster so they can make more money. One thing that I'm always curious about is is how companies approach hiring and retention. I would love to hear a little more since you just started talking about that. You know, what what have you learned about hiring and retention that you think can be helpful? Um, you know, as as you try to build out the sales force at, at Heritage, 
anything in your career that you've any ways that you've thought, you know, changed the way you think about hiring and retention? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking more about retention today than I ever have because it's the toughest job market I've ever seen, you know, especially post the pandemic. And I, I know it'll get better over time, but we've got to work through this near term crisis. It's not just us. I've, I've talked to quite a few CEOs at a, a couple of conferences over the last few weeks. Everybody is struggling to, to get employees, especially CDL drivers, which our guys are sales and service reps first, but they have to have a commercial driver's license. Very difficult to find those guys. I mean, they're in short supply today. So retention, when we get somebody in the door, it's extremely important to find a way to hang on to them. I, you know, I think we hang on to them by, by having more touch points with the employee. You can't stick these guys on an island and expect them to survive. They, they go to a branch in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for example. They meet, you know, the local people there. They don't know anything about the corporate office. So we think it's important to embrace these people, you know, assign a mentor to those people so we can continue to educate and, 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 and support the new employees, get them to the corporate office so they can see the breadth and scale of the company. And, and I hope that we can we can keep them. I mean, I've got lots of service reps that have my cell phone number and I'm happy to talk to them if, it, if I can make them comfortable if they're having a problem. I mean, we've got to send the message that we're here to take care of you. From a recruiting standpoint, we've got our own in-house recruiters. It, it's tough to be effective recruiting employees in this environment, no matter how good your recruiting department is. So we use local recruiters, we use third parties, you know, national firms, best source of, of new employees is local referrals. If your local manager is doing a great job and the employees are happy, they tend to bring their friends to the table and we get people hired. So, you know, we're trying lots of things to get new people in the door. And once we get them in the door, I want to find a way to keep them. And that, that's been a challenge, but I think we're improving upon it. You know, with outreach, I think the outreach is important. And given the tough labor market, do you start to pivot and, and think about ways that you can automate aspects of your business? Or is there technology out there or ways of automation that, you know, that, that are of it may be available to you over the next three to five years is if you invest in them or, you know, is just still a people business and there's just not a whole lot of, you know, there's no substitute for having good people. Yeah, I think that's it's the second answer. There's no real substitute for having good people. Certainly at the operating level, at the plan level, you know, we can add equipment and technology to improve processing where, where you don't have to have as many people. But at the branch service level, the, the sales and service level, it, it's all about people for us. Now, there's no automation that's going to take the place of a sales and service rep who, who's out at the customer location, making sure they're environmentally compliant, handling their their waste disposal needs. So it's it's more about training, spending time with that employee, helping them get to some level of profitability, both personally and for the company, and continuing to support them with, with ongoing training so they don't feel the need to leave us to go work for somebody else. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the physical oil, uh, the re-refinery that you have. So I feel like this company's had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the uh, used motor oil refinery over the years. So there have been some years where it hasn't been particularly profitable. 
And then this year, given all the weirdness that's going on with COVID, it's been extremely profitable. So what is your current sense of whether or not you need to own a re-refinery as opposed to simply focusing on collecting the motor oil from your customers? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a, a love-hate relationship. I mean, I, I love the work that the re-refinery has done the last four years. We've really worked hard to, to make the plant more rateable for starters. I mean, we were having regular upsets at the plant. We've invested heavily in people, you know, inspection protocols, operating envelopes. I mean, how we're, you know, we've got much more robust policies and procedures on how we're going to run the plant. And it's certainly paid off in our uptime. So we've been knock on wood, much more consistent in our operating performance and with a lower cost structure, because a lot of it's driven by the fact that we've increased production and we've increased the uptime per year where we, we schedule our shut-ins and don't have any unscheduled, you know, problem-related shut-ins that cost you a lot of money because you're not prepared for it. So certainly love what we've done on the operating front. I guess that the negative with the oil business is we're price takers for base oil. And that frustrates me because we have a ton of money invested in the plant. It's very, very good ESG friendly product that we should not have to take a discount on. We shouldn't have to pay for used motor oil as feedstock because it is a waste stream. We have a lot of money invested in trucks, people, rail cars, oil depots, separating the water from the oil, getting it to the plant. The whole process is expensive. And I get frustrated that we as an industry haven't been more disciplined to help us pay for the capital assets that we've allocated to this business. And I think, thankfully, the structural changes will help that. IMO 2020, ESG, and maybe we'll begin to see more consistent spreads in our business. So when you talk about frustration, it's been really overspread. You know, I've been here since 2012. We've had very few quarters where we've had really good spreads in the business. We've experienced great spreads in 2021, driven by IMO 2020, driven by the pandemic, driven by the recent storms. I do think fundamentally that we'll see an overall improvement in the business. I'm not going to go on record and say what that number looks like, but but I think uh, from here we'll be gross margin positive, we'll be cash flow positive, and you won't hear me complain about the business. In terms of not having access to the re-refinery as a top three collector, I think that's a problem, especially in the world that we're in today. Because people that don't have a tie-in to a re-refinery are going to have some issue moving, use motor oil, certain times of the year when the, the RFO market is not robust. And we have 40,000 customers that rely on us. Use motor oil is one of the largest waste streams in the industry. A lot of our automotive customers generate you know, regulated waste streams, non-has waste streams. We want to be able to offer that service to automotive customers without use motor oil capabilities. I think that'll be a problem. So I like to tie in. If I, you know, the, the real key for me is that we see discipline in the industry. You know, we make sure the customers, a lot of these smaller customers should not be 
paid for used motor oil, given the, the, the cost that we have to collect it. I mean, it's just expensive. It's a lot of risk. You know, trucks are now, you know, because of inflation are very, very expensive, tough to get labor. So, I mean, I think it's important for us to have discipline. We've got to pay for the capital. And given that variability and profitability with the refinery, how in the world do you create budgets for the business and set goals for employees so that they're not penalized just because of, you know, whatever, the spread is not particularly good for a six month period? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. It's, it's something that we've worked on for for last four and a half years. And it's, it's really driven by key performance indicators. I mean, we have a cost structure for the plant, for example, we'll, we'll give them a target CPG for the year. If they meet that target, they get a bonus. They've got a certain amount of down days. If they achieve the budget, they, they get paid a bonus. So it's more driven by performance metrics. I can't penalize them to your point for spread management. I mean, we're a price taker on base oil. Has been volatile, may not be as volatile going forward because of all the changes that we've talked about. So we can't weight it heavily towards just pure profitability driven by spreads. It's got to be on things we can manage, logistics cost, you know, route density on trucks, how we manage our depots, you know, getting the waste into rail cars and to the plant. All those things are what we measure for the oil segment, more so than just pure profitability. Pivoting slightly, this is a company that has deep ties to the very successful Faisenfeld family. In fact, the Heritage Group is, is your largest shareholder. When you, I know you were on the board, but when you came in as CEO, was that something that was really attractive to you? Or you know, was having family control and family influence more of a question mark for you? Yeah, I think it was a, a major factor in, in me joining the company. I've known Fred for 35 years. I mean, Fred was one of the founders of this company. He owned a small parts washing company that became the, the foundation for Heritage Crystal Clean. I actually owned a waste treatment plant in Houston, and I was shipping waste to Heritage Environmental, one of their facilities that, that had processing capabilities from my plant in Houston. I met Fred. I had a couple of investors that, that they wanted to sell a small waste treatment company because they weren't active members of, of the operation. They were just investors. We, because I had to, I was a one-third owner. We put the company in play. Fred was one of the, the people that tried to acquire the company. So I really got to know him during that process. We ended up selling it to Philip Services Corp out of Toronto, which is now Harsco. Most of those assets are a part of Harsco now, which is a publicly traded company. But post that, I stayed uh, you know, friends with, with Fred because he certainly was a, a guy that everybody respected in the, in the waste management business. I actually joined the private heritage environmental board. So maintained a relationship with him. I left the, the industrial waste business and got into the oil field waste business in the mid, mid to late 2000s. Fred and I stayed in touch when Don Brinkman retired from the board of Heritage Crystal Clean. Fred asked me to join, that was in 2012. So I really you know, spent a lot of time with Fred during that period. You know, spent time with the senior management team, loved the culture of the company. It was a pretty easy decision when Fred ultimately asked me to become CEO when Joe announced his retirement. So, you know, the timing just worked out. I had sold a, an oil field services company to a Canadian public company and 
you know, worked two years beyond my contract because I hated, I hated to leave. It was during one of the unfortunate downturns in the oil and gas business, which we experience every four or five years, partly why I wanted to get out of that business and get back into the industrial waste business because it's much more stable. So timing worked well, and I think it's an asset to have the Faisenfeld as part, you know, Faisenfeld family as partners because they're they're very smart. They've been a long-term investor in this company, and to my knowledge, have never sold a, a share of our stock. And they're very strategic and supportive of, you know, our, our ability to grow the business. So they've been great partners, and, and part of the reason why I joined the company. And what I love about family influenced companies is that they often have a long term time horizon that allows a company to suffer in the short term in order to be really successful over the long run. Can you think of any examples where this company has exhibited the willingness to suffer short term hits to profitability to build something meaningful? Yeah, it's a battle that we have internally quite a bit. I mean, do we really just hire a bunch of sales and service reps and, and professional salespeople? add you know three or four branches a year and, and, and kill our margin so it's a it's a push pull for us you know we want to grow faster but you know being a, a public company we have to maintain certain levels of margins that we, we've talked about maintaining so i think if we weren't public i would probably be pursuing faster growth than we're pursuing today so i view it more as a balanced approach then I've, I've even changed my focus more over the, the past couple of years by, by doing it via acquisition versus organic growth because it's just better. I mean, it takes two and a half to four years for a branch location to get to some level of route density and profitability. You hire a new sales and service rep, that takes time to get to a level of profitability. Professional salespeople the same way. Much easier to start with a tuck in and then bolt our services on. We can get the profitability faster. So I think, yeah, you can suffer with a, a one large shareholder, but I do care about all the other shareholders and it's important for me to maintain margin. You talk about maintaining a balance there. In hindsight, over the last few years, are there area, any areas in which you wish the company had been willing to suffer more and, and had made more investments that you feel like you're catching up on or that you wish you'd had put more money there uh, previously, given where the market went? Yeah, I think I would have, you know, if I look back on four years ago, I should have probably been a bit more aggressive on larger acquisition targets compared to where they are today. I think multiples have expanded significantly over the, the past four years. So I think in hindsight, I would have been more aggressive four years ago. You know, I don't have any other regrets other than maybe just not pushing growth a little bit harder because of the margin pressure, but acquisitions probably yes. And I'm still, you know, I struggle with paying the, the multiples that we have to pay today without meaningful synergies. And, and I'm certainly okay with it if we can get into cut costs fairly quickly and, and, and reach some level of return that we're happy with. And... You know, I think you guys have made some tuck-ins, but as you said, you, you've kind of um, not, a pr not gone after those bigger deals. Do you have a sense of that, that M&A is going to play a larger role for this company over the next three to five years? And if so, you know, would it be kind of bolt-ons to the existing business 
or is there another leg somewhere that would make more sense for you? That would also make sense for you guys. Yeah, let's um, talk about the first point first. Uh, we certainly have, have participated in every deal that's out there. And I'd like to think we were aggressive, which I know we were because we, we you know, we certainly got into the second round on some larger deals, you know, weren't successful with it, but we, we've been very aggressive on the tuck in front. We're going to close, you know, definitely get three of them done this year. Uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't do two or three, four a year, given the pipeline of opportunities that we have. And I'm leaning more toward bolting on to our existing services versus another leg, just because we're already fairly complicated. And to my point earlier, we have enough service lines. Let's penetrate our existing branches with all the service lines that we already possess, rather than going out and trying to establish another leg and selling that in addition to everything else we're selling to our existing customers. They may get fatigued from all the things that we're offering them. So I'm really staying zeroed in on you know, us being strong in the environmental business and being able to support all of our customer needs. But yes, we're going to, we've been aggressive. We're going to stay aggressive. We've got our own internal people that are chasing regional deals. You know, we go into a marketplace and look at the competitive landscape and we look for companies that operate the way we want to operate that have the assets that fit into our asset base. And we just, have outreach to those companies. I mean, obviously we look at deals that are banked by investment bankers, but we've got our own development team that goes out and looks for opportunities. And that takes time because you've got to convince the owner that you're the right partner. And so you've got to have a fairly robust pipeline, you know, 30 to 50 companies that you're looking at. And we do, and we'll continue to do that. And I know you mentioned that out West, you need to build more scale and more route density. But are there any other areas in the business where you feel like you were subscale in any way or you need more scale just to be able to compete? Or, you know, has that you know not been an obvious issue in your mind? It's certainly not been an obvious issue in the Midwest and the Northeast. We have, I'd even go as far as saying we're fairly strong in the Southeast, the South. You know, really the, the area that we struggle to compete, especially when you're looking at you know, national automotive accounts, national accounts where a manufacturing location has locations all over North America, including the Western half of the U.S. We frankly struggle to compete because we don't have assets in the Western half of the U.S. Yes, we have branches, but we're literally sending product from the Midwest and the South to our locations in Seattle and LA and Portland. It's just not economical. So we think it's important for us to have a hub out there, for example, so we can have a place to stage product. We want to be able to open containers and process waste. We just accomplished that with an acquisition in Bakersfield. So all of that's important to us building route density. We're not done yet. We're going to have to do more acquisitions out West not only of sales and service offices, but physical operating plants. So we have our own internal capabilities that can help convince these customers that we have the ability to be the environmental manager of their waste streams. You know, people are concerned about capabilities. They want to limit vendors. They want to limit exposure. They want ESG friendly vendors. We, we think we fit that, uh, I mean, fit that box very well. We just need the assets to back it up.
And that's my job to make sure we get that done and, and get our people some support out west with the build route density. And if that's true for you, given your scale across the country and, and how well known this company is, I'd have to assume that some of the mom and pops who are still specifically maybe in the used motor oil collection business have to be struggling. Are there any industry changes or structural changes that are kind of benefiting the, the scaled players more than maybe some of the smaller guys, aside from what you've already mentioned? Yeah, I mean, having been a mom and pop company in Houston when I owned the waste treatment company, I mean, we were a small regional player. Those guys are always going to find a way to survive, provided they do a good job with outlet management. I mean, you have to have a place to ship the waste. I do think that is going to become tougher as we've seen more industry consolidations in our business. You just don't have as many mom and pops that have significant outlets to move waste, including in the, U the used motor oil world because of the fact that some of the RFO outlets have gone away. So I do think it's going to become tougher for mom and pops, but they're very, very resilient. They don't have the margin profile we do. They operate at a lower cost structure than we do. But I do think over time, driven by the need for a, a strong balance sheet, the need to be ESG friendly and focused on recycling technologies that larger companies that have multiple locations and and very strong ESG capabilities are going to have an advantage over some of these mom and pops. And I think that'll create opportunities for us to do more of these smaller tuck-in acquisitions of the mom and pops. And that's why you're seeing more and more put themselves into play because it's a great M&A market. And secondarily, they're, they're struggling because of changes in the infrastructure of, of the market. Well, given where your balance sheet is, it sounds like, you know, you guys will be in a good position to, to over time, you know, help consolidate the industry a little further. And then hopefully, you know, some of the issues that you've talked about regarding spread management across the industry will, will hopefully be alleviated. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. So as we wind down, uh, we're going to close with, with two questions that we, we often close with. So let's, but this, this is the first one. What are some critical things that if I had talked to you, whatever, 10 or 15 years ago, you would have one position on, but you've had to rethink or change your position on meaningfully over, over the, the uh, kind of the interim period. Yeah, I think the biggest change we've experienced here, and if I could go back you know, 15 years, obviously I wasn't involved with the company. I would have been probably more aggressive on our, our internal capabilities. And that's one of the things that we focused a ton of energy on the last uh, four and a half years, making sure that we protect ourselves going forward, that we have our own capabilities. We're not relying on third parties. Major shift for us because in our history, we, we've typically been a drum in, drum out company, no processing. So that's been one of the major shifts for us culturally. And if I could go back and, and, and do it sooner, I, I would, but wasn't around, but we're catching up. I want to have the ability to control our own destiny. Not sure I answered the question, did I? No, no, that's that's totally makes sense. Um, and so we're going to close with the question we always close with, um, which is, and, and I think we've talked a lot about these things, but I want to give you the chance to highlight what you think is most misunderstood or underappreciated about 
you know, the company, its culture, its assets, the business, whatever, whatever you think that, you know, if, if I were a potential new investor, you'd want to leave me with about what's kind of misunderstood about this company. Yeah, obviously, I, I do quite a quite a few investor calls and meetings. And when I look at what's the most misunderstood, certainly the oil business is, is the, the biggest issue. I mean, I think because of our inability to consistently produce gross margins, we struggle telling the story properly. The, the good news is, is I think we are beginning to see some structural changes in the business. I mean, obviously you, you saw that Clean Harbors is acquiring Vertex, paying a fairly healthy multiple for Vertex. It's a, you know, not an ES company. It's a it's an oil company that collects used motor oil and processes used motor oil. If you apply that same value to our assets, I think we're worth more money because we're we're producing as much or more gross margin as they ever have. So certainly, I think that alone makes me believe that our our, our used motor oil business, our oil segment, is undervalued. I can understand why because we've got to prove to the investing world that we can consistently generate positive gross margins from that business. And I'm confident with the structural changes, both in our you know, operating footprint and what's happened in the market from a macro standpoint, IMO 2020 ESG, that we can, we can have a very stable, good cash flow generating business. We're beyond the point where we need to spend a lot of capital on the business. Outside of rolling stock, we have no large plans to do any plan upgrades. It's it's more of a you know debottlenecking maintenance mode. So I'm hoping over time I could change the perception on our oil business by generating consistent gross margin profit and proving to the world that the business can be profitable. On top of the fact that we have access to forty thousand customers that we can cross sell. Our ES services into that are most predominantly oil oil type customers. And we're doing that. I don't know if you look at our website. We just developed a new website. We've got a automotive launch we call OneDrive, where we're going out and selling a you know package service to automotive customers, where we bundle up oil and a couple of ES services. We give them a discount. And trying to build our national footprint so we can work for all the national players in the automotive world. So hopefully I can change the perception of the oil business. The other thing that I, I don't think people really understand is that we're big into the container management business. You know, 20,000 containers a period, that business is growing quickly. It's gonna grow even more with the development of our own treatment capabilities. So as we add plants, we're gonna add capabilities. So I think that piece of our business is underappreciated and will grow. And, and lastly, if I'm looking at businesses that people don't really know a lot about is our field services business, it's an asset light business. We got into it because we thought it was important for us to you know, convince our customer that we're more than just a, a small quantity generator player and give us a chance to manage everything. If we can't handle it within our own network, we'll third party it. We'll do it in a way that's competitive and we'll make sure you're compliant. I guess one one last point is that isn't it true also that the variability and the profitability of the oil segment kind of obscures the strong profitability you see in ES and the really high margins you get in that business? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's which, you know, which, that's which something is, that for people. I think to that goes back to 
that goes back to your love eight point. Obviously, we love it this year, but I've always personally loved it because of the work that we do. I mean, it's great for the environment, great for ESG. So very proud of, of, of the, the segment. I just want to see more consistency. And I think uh, hopefully with structural changes, we'll get that over the next uh, next few years. It'll be a great business and people will stop asking us about uh, you know, whether we can consistently make money in the business. Well, Brian, this has been a great overview of your journey at Heritage and, you know, the, the journey that the company's been on to, you know, to, to tell its ESG story better, to be a good actor within a, you know, a more environmentally focused world. So uh, we really appreciate your time. This has just been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. It's always great to talk about the business. As you can tell, we're very proud of it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at cobestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.